I'm trying a new thing here on the Life and Times of Video Games that I'll be running regularly alongside the main show, probably around once a month. It's just going to be straight interviews, lightly edited to smooth out the flow and cut out the most extraneous bits. And for the time being, these interviews will be with other people doing games history work in all its many forms. So I'll be talking to writers, YouTubers, archivists, bloggers, podcasters, and people from any other relevant disciplines where they're doing something to reveal new insights or details about how this incredible medium and the industry behind it has changed over time. First up is a Dutchman, a fellow by the name of Tom Lenting, who earlier this year published a book, which is only available in Dutch, unfortunately, about the history of games in the Netherlands. It's a complete overview of the Dutch games market and development industry from 1978 through to 2018, with details on the humble origins of Killzone Studio Guerrilla Games and ridiculous fishing devs Vrambia, as well as the deep connection technology company Philips has had to the growth of games development in the country. Now, I don't understand Dutch, so I can't read it, and I suspect it's the same for most of you. But I thought us English speakers could at least get a a highlights reel of the book's insights from an interview with Tom. So here, without further ado, is my interview with Tom Lenting about his book on Dutch games history. Enjoy. I guess the first thing uh, to ask would be, uh, what got you started writing a book about the history of the Dutch games industry? Well, I actually read a book by a colleague of yours, I think, from New Zealand. It's called History of uh, Digital Art by Andrew Williams. I believe it's a scholar from New Zealand. So I read that book and I really liked it. I thought it was a really good of, uh, overview of the worldwide games industry. But of course, I missed our, our, our little uh, country of the Netherlands. And there, there was nothing about games from the Netherlands. So I thought, well... It would be a nice addition if someone uh, would would write something about the games from the Netherlands, just about our game industry. Mm. Yeah, and and there are there are actually quite a few uh, Dutch games and game developers that that are internationally renowned, right? Uh, like you mentioned in our email exchange, the Jazz Jackrabbit games. Uh, and there, there are others like Gorilla Games and Two Tribes and stuff. Yeah, the, the guy that made yes, Jack Rabbit later worked for Gorilla Games, so that is you can see that's a sort of continuation. I mean, he started with sort of with yes, Jack Rabbit, and he later uh, worked for Gorilla Games and he felt Killzone. But that that's uh, uh, that's right. That's the, the biggest game company of the Netherlands, of course, the Gorilla Games. Yes. Let's backpedal that slightly. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, how important the Jazz Jackrabbit games are to uh, the development of the Dutch games industry? Yes, uh, I think it's uh, pretty important because it was the first game from the Netherlands that was also international uh, famous. Before we had some uh, national uh, game developers, especially on the Commodore 64. But uh, with Jazz Jackrabbit, it was the first game that became uh, yeah, uh, famous in, uh, abroad, especially to the, to the shareware model. And it had a big publisher with Epic Games. So it helped to uh, broaden the game industry in the Netherlands to other countries. Mm. Yeah. And uh, uh, another thing that 
uh, from what I can tell, is covered extensively in your book, is uh, the various ties that Philips has had to games over the years. So the CDI console, but then also uh, the older Magnavox Odyssey console, um, or the video pack. Video pack calls here, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there was a Pong machine, I think. Uh, they had some early home computers. They worked with Nintendo on the CD-ROM thing that got cancelled. Yeah, so we've got those silly CDI games with, uh, with Zelda. And... Yeah, so, so so they did all this stuff, and, and I'd love to hear a bit more about about Philips and, and their significance? Well, I, I always think that uh, hardware developers are very important to, to drive the games industry, like, uh, of course, Japan and America have, have Microsoft and Nintendo, so they have a lot of uh, hardware developers. But here we only have uh, Philips. <laughs> so that, that, that is a, is a, uh, uh, well, it was, not anymore, uh, um, because now they only do health, healthcare uh, anymore but in the past they made as you said a lot of uh, hardware so that also important as a step up for many uh, dutch developers especially the cdi um, and what was also important i think that philips never actually of course it is not like nintendo philips is not a game company so none they um, none of their hardware was marketed only as a games console, especially the CDI. They always said, well, this is an entertainment console it's for the whole family. You have to learn something about it. So I think it was important for the Dutch uh, market, that um, for the Dutch game market, that we really uh, grow um, uh, in, the, in the segment of serious games and educational games, because Philips never only chose was was the game company and never chose to only develop the game hardware and always market it as learning uh, equipment. We now have a um, an industry that's that's very focused on educational and serious games. In my, in my opinion, so that all emerged out of uh, the initiatives that Philips was doing with its hardware. It's interesting. Yeah, and also because the CDI flopped worldwide, and <laughs> yeah, it also flopped here eventually. But that, that doesn't mean it wasn't important for the Dutch game industry. Many small developers started there, and they now still have mobile companies that that still exist. It was a, a learning, very important learning curve. Also, you know, also how 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 not to do things. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, were there any developers, uh, individuals, or companies that started out doing uh, software or games for CDI that uh, later made it big? No, well, most uh, famous is I think uh, it's a company called Lost Boys Games. They mm-hmm. made the first game on CDI that was called Lost Right, and th- that company merged with the developer of uh, Jazz Jack Rabbit, and those. Two companies became what's now Guerrilla Games. So, so mm. that little company is one of the predecessor, predecessors of uh, Guerrilla Games nowadays. That made mm. the first game on the CDI. So I always think that that's nice, <laughs> nice note. Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, are there any other big 
big games companies or individual big games that maybe people don't realize uh, have roots in the Netherlands? Um, yeah, of course. I really uh, there's so many games. You already mentioned Tokitori, I think. We think it's a big game. We know it. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty popular game. It's internationally known. Yeah, no, that's from uh, that's also that's from uh, two tribes, Dutch developer. That's now kind of defunct. <laughs> they they only sell games, not really make them anymore. Because that uh, the chicken or uh, that that became a symbol of the Dutch game industry because it became so popular. Especially, it had so many ports uh, uh, afterwards. And it also started, that's fun to know, um, on, on the M, uh, MSX. Mm-hmm. Do, do I pronounce that right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's fine. MSX. They started, uh, as, as, as many games started there, and also a predecessor uh, was a company called Phony, <laughs> with an F. <laughs> Phony. Mm-hmm. Called, they made a little game called Eggbird in, in Exciting Adventures, and that was a predecessor to Tokitori and it started on the Amazon. So that was also from a Dutch, uh, Dutch company, so a predecessor of um, two tribes. So that's not, mm-hmm. I would think that's fun to know. Mm. Uh, speaking of the, the MSX, uh, what, uh, what gaming systems have were popular in the Netherlands? Well, uh, first, we, uh, we had the main focus on uh, home computers. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately not the Macintosh, but <laughs> we, many people mm-hmm. had the uh, MSX and uh, Commodore uh, machines. And later on, of course, just uh, almost everybody had DOS or uh, uh, Windows. And I think uh, th- that were also the main machines to play games on. But later on, it was just the, the regular suspects, you know, Nintendo, and, uh, especially Nintendo. And here in the Netherlands, also in Europe, the, as in Brazil, the Sega Master System was a little more popular than the, than, than the NES. So, uh, yeah, just Sega and Nintendo were around very much. And also Atari's 2600. So I think it's like in the most other countries. Hmm. Well, you asked about some uh, other famous games from the Netherlands. So, um, so other, some others are uh, um, the Age of the Wonders series from uh, Triumph Studios. They also made the uh, Overlord. So, Age of Wonders is a popular strategy game on the PC, and Overlord is a kind of strategy game on the Xbox. And uh, more famous, more recently, is, of course, uh, Ridiculous Fishing on the iPhone. They also uh, got a prize for from Apple in 2013, I think, for best iPhone game. Mm. It's from a little company called Flambeer. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Flambeer and, uh, and their, their impact. And uh, I guess, like, on the indie scene, particularly since they got famous. Well, yeah, they... Yeah, like a, a role model for <laughs> how, of course, how others would like to to uh, yeah to, to accomplish the same success. You know, it's from a little company that 
only, ma- only makes digital games and then it got that fame and actually got an, an iPhone game of the year. So that's pretty impressive. And also the games have a unique look, I think, you know, those pixel hmm. kind of greater look, it's, it's really special. Uh, are there other Dutch indie developers that, that you think are, are coming up through the ranks and, and maybe might have a, a big hit as well one day? Well, there's a company called Red Beard. They make mm-hmm. some Tetris clones like Tricky uh, Towers and Wizard Academy. The recording is a bit hard to understand here, so I'll cut in. He just referred to Tricky Towers developer Weird Beard. And then in the bit that's cut out here, he's mentioned a company called Lucky Cat, which has done great with a WarioWare coin called Grumpy Cat's Worst Game Ever. And then he also mentions Abbey Games Utrecht which made a pretty strong splash with their quirky god game, Reyes. I think they're uh, making very impressive games. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Tricky Towers. I, I really like that game. Like I, my fiancé and I play it together. So, you know those from the Netherlands? I didn't, actually. I, I might have, when I bought the game, noticed, but it, if, I, if I knew at some point, I'd forgotten. Uh, it's from Red Beard from the from Amsterdam. It's actually funny because many of Flambeer and Red Beard, they also, uh, many of those companies uh, started as not as game developers, but as uh, developers from little flash games for internet and uh, advertorial games. And then later on, they started on games. Yeah, was the uh, is um flash very important to the dutch indie scene or the dutch games scene more broadly no i don't think very important just some studios started there i think it's also the same as worldwide many of course in the early days of internet many started with flash development and well some developed into uh game developers yeah it was it was kind of just another nice pathway into the industry an easier way to make games I, I think uh, some, I, I be honest, I, I, I don't know much about the Dutch in- games industry, but I think some parts of it uh, emerged out of the demo scene in the 1980s and the 90s. Is that right? Yeah. There were a lot of collaborations with uh, among Dutch developers, but also with developers from Sweden and Belgium and Germany. So it was Europe focus and you're right. Um, Many of those, uh, they started mostly on the Commodore and MSX. They made many uh, uh, demos and uh, hack. first they started with hacking uh, hacking games and making intros. And then they uh, they developed uh, games and eventually they got uh, game developers. So that's right. Uh, I always find it fun. There's a little company called... Uh, they started on M6, Parallax, and there's a guy called Cas Kramers. They made not, not so famous games for the M6, but, but, uh, but he's now a professor of uh, security at Oxford University. So I always find, find it fun to see the careers of those guys where they go. Yeah, it's funny when that, when that happens. There. Every so often when you do games history, you find someone, uh, they made some little thing earlier, early on when they were young. Like uh, the guy who went to be one of the senior executives at Apple made a tiny little freeware Mac game. 
<laughs> before he was big, A.V. Tavanian. <laughs> I always found that story with uh, uh, Steve Wojcik and the break that the Apple II was actually a breakout port. I always find that a good story. <laughs> also, something little similar. Yeah, and he he basically built that computer so that it could play breakout. Like d- designed the whole thing just because he wanted a computer that could play breakout. Turn the turn on breakout. But um, what's also a nice uh, anecdote? Uh, let's see, I can find them. In um, in in the in the early eighties. The early 90s, mm-hmm. um, the, in the Dutch, edu- the Dutch educational uh, system for preschool, it, uh, it was they were the first um, educational system worldwide to adopt a Microsoft Windows uh, 3.0 because before they all used DOS computers, but they wanted more uh, something intuitive. Intuitive, sorry. Mm-hmm. So they they searched and they chose uh, Windows, and then actually Bill Gates came to uh, the Netherlands to close the deal. So it was the first educational uh, system for uh, preschool or uh, primary school that adopted Windows. So I think that this, this is a fun story. It's also important because um, you know if the educational uh, all of that that's that same system also software will go there you know so hmm. they they kind of the developers kind of let it go the commodore and m6 and i'll chose from windows and because it wasn't in the in the primary school it was nothing uh, even more educational software uh, rose but uh, the serious uh, gaming scene is that's the one of the most important markets for the Netherlands, where for serious games, the largest, uh, we have the largest market share in Europe, especially for healthcare. So that's special because we are, of course, a lot smaller than like Germany, France, or uh, uh, the UK. No. But I think that's because of our history that we. Uh, because of Philips and we have a small country and it is hard it was very hard for developers to make money alone with games you know mm. so uh, most of them chose also to release, to release educational games or even uh, accountancy software so they could spread the, the risk of their software so because of, I think uh, because of uh, two reasons the Netherlands is a small market. It was hard to um, make money with games alone. Uh, so they mostly, uh, mostly Phelps also released uh, educational software. And because of Philips, uh, Philips and City Eye, and they also always choose for the entertainment. The, the, market is, the market for educational service software is very, still very important. But of course, the, the, it's, it's always uh, serious gaming is always, it's called gaming, but I'm, I'm not quite sure if you, you can call it, yeah. It's not really, it's sort of segment of the gaming market. Because if we talk about games, 
you think of the games you mentioned, like uh, Killzone and the other games. Mm. The Horizon Zero Dawn is, of course, the last uh, big, big game from the Netherlands. That's famous. Also from Guerrilla Games. Mm. Yeah, it, I, I guess you could kind of think of there being a, a Venn diagram of uh, games and uh, software. And serious games is where the two overlap. Like serious software and games, they meet in serious games. Now, um, there were some. Oh, sorry, go. On. You just just want to mention that there are some very. I don't know if that's the case in Australia too, because I I don't know any Australian game companies to be honest. But um, we we have some national uh, some, some companies here that have really net that been national very successful. This company uh, called Davilex Games, and they made uh, games like London Racer. Also, that's called here A2 Racer. That's a very A2 is a A2. Sorry, <laughs> A2 is a very famous uh, high, high, highway. So uh-huh. they, they focus on national games, and they made really cheap cheap games, and they made many. So I always call Davilex Game one of the inventors of, of shovelware because they released <laughs> many cheap games that focused on the Dutch Dutch uh, Dutch market and they were very successful here in the Netherlands. But I talked to some uh, Dutch gaming journalists and they said that they went that they, that guys went to uh, uh, E3 and Gamescoms and that, that kind of events game events. And they were, they were really hated there. <laughs> so they were successful in the Netherlands, but on, on those uh, game events, they said, oh, that's a company that, that just releases all kinds of crap, and they uh, they, uh, <laughs> they kill the game market. So it's, um, it's always, uh, I find it fun, it's a matter of uh, perspective, you know. For many Dutch gamers, it's, oh, I remember that, I played that, and for International Davilex is more, oh, it's a company that made really crappy games. Yeah, and uh, you, you you mentioned Australia, uh, and curious thing about Australia, and I guess that there are some parallels here with, with Dutch developers. Uh, Australia being a small market has always been very internationally focused. Uh, nearly Nearly all the companies here make games for people in America or Europe. They don't necessarily make games for Australians, and so that means that they style their games in the same way that uh, an American company might. Yeah, but your adva- um, your advantage is uh, advantage, of course, that your uh, native uh, language is English. <laughs> yeah, big advantage. No, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and, and so now nowadays a lot of. The, a lot of the bigger indies are actually Australian companies. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, like Armello, you might have heard of Armello, a strategy game uh, that's by a company called League of Geeks. Um, there was uh, Half Brick Studios. They they did a whole bunch of really popular mobile games uh, in the early in like five. Five to ten years ago, they were one of the biggest mobile games companies in the world. Um, they had uh, the um, Fruit Ninja game. You might have heard of that. Uh, we got um, Crossy Road, one of the most popular games in the world a couple of years ago. It's made here in Melbourne. You know what I, 
I always wonder about the Australian uh, game industry or more market. Like here in, here in mm. the Netherlands for games regulations, I mean, with things like blood and anything, games, violence, uh, we, yeah. we're not very strict here. I mean, almost everything is, is possible here and, and nobody really cares. And when you go to our neighbors in, in uh, Germany, uh, blood, blood is always made green. And of course, they're more sensitive about uh, World War II symbols and games like Wolfenstein, but that's the history. But I often uh, read about Australia that you have really strict regulations for games. Uh, to, is, is that right? Yes, we do. Uh, there's been... I always wonder why, why is that? Is, is there a reason? There, there, yeah, there's been a lot of talk about it, constant uh, talk about it over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, and it's it's kind of a coming from a place of misunderstanding uh, from the the, regula- the regulators and the ratings boards uh, where they think almost like games are affecting you more deeply than a, a violent movie might. Because for uh, movies, they're not so strict? Well, movies, that they're, they're more strict than some countries, but they're not as strict as with video games. Uh, there's a there's a double standard, and that's why there's been so much talk about it. Sometimes uh, the the people who are coming up with the ratings, they don't really understand games, unfortunately. So the there there are some inconsistencies about about the way things are done, and uh, there's a a sort of a Big Brother vibe in we. We think we know best about what's right for our kids. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but we, yeah, here, as I said, it's not so strict. In 2002, there was a, that was funny, there was a game called uh, Hooligans Bar over Europe, and there was a game about uh, soccer hooligans. <laughs> so it's a strategy <laughs> game. And now, well, it wasn't really special, but then someone cared because in those years, uh, soccer hooliganism was a problem here. And because someone cared, and were, I, I think even questions in politics, it became a hit, you know, it always works like that. If you can uh, gain some controversy with your game, you're guaranteed to get a hit. <laughs> yeah, so. We'll be back with the rest of the interview right after this short break. If you enjoy listening to the Life and Times of Video Games, I'd really appreciate it if you could help spread the word about the show. Or if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These are just little things, but they make a big difference in my efforts to grow the show's audience. You could do it right now, while you're listening, and I'd be super grateful if you would. But anyway, let's get back on with the interview. Uh, let's, can we, shall we talk a little about your book? Because I really enjoyed it. Because I was such a mech gamer when I was a kid, and I, I played all those games that you mentioned. Uh, I, I really, this thankful writing, I really, I really liked it. I mean, did you have a childhood with, with Macintosh, or how did you come? Yes, uh, yeah, very, very much. So I was basically born into a Mac household. Yes, my my dad bought a Mac Plus. A short time before I was born, I believe, 
or otherwise while I was a very young baby. Uh, and so Mac would have been the first computer that I used. Uh, some of my earliest memories are uh, messing around on, on that Mac Plus. And then uh, all through my childhood, uh, I was primarily using a Macintosh for things. Uh, yeah. We went through a few different models, of course, over the years, upgraded a couple of times. That's how was the availability of software in, in, uh, in Australia? Was it, it was not great. No. Uh, there were some computer stores. Uh, so a general computer store generally wouldn't have Mac-specific software, mm -hmm. at least by the time I was old enough to notice. Mm -hmm. But they uh, they might have Mac and PC stuff, and there were some Mac-specific computer stores. No. Uh, I think here many came with the post order. We, did, we didn't really have any Mac stores. But what I wrote you, I think <laughs> I, I had some Mac games, but I, I don't think I ever bought any in a store, I'll, I'll, mostly by, by mail, by mail order. Or there were always, uh, yeah, I think what you also wrote in your book, a copy, uh, the problem of copying software. Yeah, yeah because uh, there were always game, like my dad came, a guy, a game guy. And I always hoped he came along so he could bring a few new games with him. So that's mostly how I got my games. Yeah, I, I think I've told this story somewhere before. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, if we didn't buy a game from a store, the way I would come across games is they would just appear in my house. <laughs> like my my brother might might have got it or something from from a friend or or through some other pirate means and and the game would just appear on a disc or on the computer itself and i'd be what's this and i'd start playing it it was like games magically appeared <laughs> that's something, <laughs> sounds something similar and so if you guys didn't really have uh mac computer stores uh how were you getting the the hardware were, were macs hard to get at regular computer stores? Well, I, I can't really say, you know, my, my dad, my dad was, was a Mac dealer. So, and I was a kid, so I really didn't think about no. how, how he got, how he got the system. So I, I really cannot answer that question. He sold them and I don't know how, how that really worked actually, mm. because I was too small to, to really care about it or to think about it, the process behind it. And did you know other people? Did you have like friends who were also Mac users or were you the only one? No, I think it was the, <laughs> was the only one. It was like, I was like one of those, um, when, when I was a kid, one of those early Mac users, you know, that kind of thing, the Mac uh, and Apple's holy. I really liked in your book the anecdote about uh, about Bungie when they released uh, Marathon 2. They got all those angry emails because it was also released for Windows. <laughs> I think I was kind of that kind of state also in those years. <laughs> you know, from the Mac is um, the best. Yeah, it's it was a really quirky thing that phenomenon is uh it's been called a cult of mac elsewhere uh 
that this way that people would be so so zealous in their love of the Macintosh that they would suddenly hate you if you even considered the idea that the Macintosh wasn't enough for for everyone to use. But in, in practice, of course, it was it could be a problem. And at school, uh, most of your friends had that Windows uh, PCs too. <laughs> But I, I read your book. I, I, I was um, the, the the first iMac with with the uh, the blue and the, and the red ones. That's of course more. That's not really a business machine because I, I was I was found that interesting as you wrote in your book. First, it was really aimed at business. They even didn't even want those that uh, the Alice game on it. So I didn't know that. So that wasn't. The f- the one that was aimed at business was the very first Macintosh, the original Macintosh in 1984. Um, the the iMac, the from uh, was it 1998? That was aimed at consumers. That was a, a lifestyle machine. It was only in the early days, I think, that Apple had this idea that they wanted to take down IBM. That they wanted to be the new business giants. Uh, this is right after the, the Apple III had failed. And that was a machine that they made specifically for uh, the Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 market, like for the big, the big companies. They wanted, it to, they wanted those big companies to buy an Apple III and use it for their business. And it didn't work so well. And so then with the Macintosh, they thought, well, here we have a machine that uh, it makes work so easy. It makes work so much fun. Wouldn't you want it in your office? (laughs) Wouldn't you want it to be your productivity computer? And then the other thing is that they needed to distance themselves from games because the business people were saying, this thing looks like a toy. And yeah. then Apple, their marketing people got kind of scared and they're like, well, if they think it, it's a toy already, then what are they going to think once they see that we've got games on it? They're, they're just going to write us off completely. Yeah. Then they, they reacted kind of badly and they started saying, oh, no, no, the Macintosh is not a toy. It's a serious machine for serious business. The, the first iMac, let, let's go back to that, because it was, mm. of course, the main focus was, was you could... You could um, have easy access to to internet with it. It was one of the yes. main selling points. It's actually, if I take another step back from say the Philips CDI, was one of the first, maybe even the first uh, consoles that had access to internet. So it was released in 1991, and it was actually mm-hmm. possible to have the internet on it. So I think that's a really special for for a game console to be one of the first to have. But that uh, <laughs> that as a side note. Were there any, uh, well, actually, you've mentioned some. Uh, what would you say are the most notable Dutch-made games to make their way to the Mac over the years? Well, I don't know uh, many, but I mentioned, as you said, I mentioned the Jazz Jaguar with uh, two. It was not the first, but mm. the second part. I think that's the most uh, famous, actually, because I can't really think of many more right now. <laughs> I think that's the most famous. It was just a poor um, game. I don't know. That's a nice game. 
you mentioned in your in your emails to me uh, about um, magazines and how there was only I think you said one Mac gaming magazine uh, uh, that things. was was Dutch native. Yeah, it was not a game. It was just uh, not just gaming. Right? It was called yeah, yeah. Mac Fan, and it was for for all kind of Mac Mac stuff. Hmm. But here in the Netherlands, because most people uh, speak English here. We had a lot of magazines from uh, what I said from Britain, and that's still so today. You know, Britain magazines from Britain are very, um, are very important here. I think for the work for the industry because they they they're more uh, focused on Europe, so they're closer to our market than uh, American magazines. You see, even today, yeah. I think you also read uh, the, the magazine Retro, Retro Gamer, I guess. You know that. Mm-hmm. And so that's available here, and I really like it, and I think it's good. But there are also some, they're more focused on Europe, but sometimes it's a little British because, you know, platforms like the Armstrong and Spectrum are more like. So we're less popular here. We we, let, we read a lot of uh, British magazines and also from uh, for the Mac, especially Mac format. I especially remember <laughs> that I wrote you with Mac format and I, the Mac Action magazine that just existed for ten uh, episodes, but I thought it was really nice. Yeah, I I never knew that that one existed until I was quite late in researching my book and then suddenly I was very sad because I would have loved to have a Mac gaming focused magazine for 10 episodes <laughs> <laughs> yeah even if only for 10 issues the last episode he also wrote yo uh, we uh, you with with uh, we existed for 10 episodes so we uh, proved a Mac uh, Mac uh, game only magazine is, is worth existing so but you know I don't know if that's true. If it's only there for ten episodes, <laughs> it was, uh, there was also a lot, a lot of uh, entertainment uh, reviewed in those uh, in those magazines hmm. because I think there weren't enough games <laughs> to review. Yeah, there'd, there'd be some months where uh, there'd be so little coming out for the Mac that you probably wouldn't be able to fill a whole magazine with. Yeah, and especially coverage because. Not a lot of shareware was reviewed, but you also wrote in your book. They they mostly only uh, uh, reviewed the retail software and almost no shareware. Though that's that's remarkable. Yeah, the only the only magazine that really gave shareware the time of day was um, Mac Addict, which became Mac Life later on. Yeah. I was found that interesting because you know it was all of us uh, Mac games played all those Ambrosia games. Now, on, on the subject of uh, games magazines, uh, were there many Dutch language games magazines? Yeah, especially uh, that's like... that's interesting because in the early nineties, the, the the game market here became more mature. So then, two uh, game magazines, Dutch. Dutch native game magazines arose. First is called Hoogspel, which means high high game. They don't exist anymore. They were a little serious. And another very famous magazine that's still that first released in 1993 
and that's still around today so that's that's uh, very good <laughs> it's power is a magazine called power limited and they were they are focused on all kind of they even they even reviewed mac games in the early days so i think there was a guy working now i know there was a guy working there that had a mac and video by like mac games so there was a dutch magazine that reviewed like one one Macintosh game every <laughs> every month, along with all the other Nintendo and uh, Sega games and PC games. So when you're a Mac gamer, you are really excited just to read that one review of a Mac game <laughs> in a Dutch magazine of a uh, Dutch magazine Power Limited. So that was fun. Yeah, it's nice to to at least have one there. At least they're acknowledging that you exist. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that <laughs> was the feeling. <laughs> I was wondering, do you have any plans to get your book translated into English at some point? Well, uh, maybe at some point, but now there's not enough enough interest. You know, there's really interest from mm. the, from from Dutch Dutch players, but the the interest from uh, you know play gamers that that, that that don't speak Dutch is limited. So maybe in the future, but. I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I was thinking about it before the call, actually, and I suspect that nearly everyone who would buy your book if it were in English is kind of in the industry. They're they're historians and archivists. Yeah, or there's someone related to the Netherlands. Someone who who has a, a specific reason to be into it, not just an ordinary gamer who happens to like games history. Those those people might be a little bit too esoteric. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> now you've written articles at a whole bunch of places. You've got videos on YouTube. You've got this book. What are the best places for people to go if they'd like to learn more about you and your work on old video games? Well, they just can visit my LinkedIn or they... The book is uh, published by uh, Karel van Mander Academy, so they can search that on uh, Google and they can check there. Or they can visit my YouTube channel, as you said, Apple MacTone. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your morning to to chat. I hope you're not going to be too tired at work later. Thank you. I hope you still have a voice left. I'll, I'll get a hot drink into me and I'll be all right. You can find a link to buy Tom's book in the show notes, along with links to his YouTube channel and LinkedIn profile. I've also included links to a couple of English language reviews of his book, which offer a few insights and bits of trivia connected to games in the Netherlands. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. And as much as I love doing it, it's a super time-intensive project. So if you'd like it to continue long-term, then there are three main ways you can help. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Really simple, just a rating and a short review. It helps improve the show's search discovery and increases the chances I'll get featured. You can also share your favorite episodes with friends and family and colleagues and fans and enemies, or post about it on Reddit and Hacker News and whatever other social news platforms you like. Or you can make a donation, either via PayPal or on Patreon where my monthly supporters receive various perks like research notes, interruption-free episodes, bonus sound bites, bonus interviews, and more. 
head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N to find out more. And again, please remember to share your favorite episodes. Word of mouth buzz is the most effective way to grow shows like this. In the meantime, I'm going to get back to work planning out season three, which will drop in late October. I'll see you.